Welcome to the podcast of The Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God, calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. Our guest for tonight is someone that I have a, a long history and a long relationship with. Uh, his name is Johnny Lyston. He is the former pastor of uh, two churches in, in, in Cape Town. And he's really gone through quite a deconstruction just in terms of his own personal journey. It was just really special catching up with uh, with an with a old dear friend like this and, and being able to hear some bits of his story again that I do know and then some stuff that I, that I don't know but especially just for him to be very present to the conversation and to just be very, uh, you know, just to share so personally and vulnerably about his own deconstruction and where he's at and some of the issues and challenges that he's facing and also just some of the wonderful uh, discoveries that he's made uh, and some of the personal growth that he's gone through. I really enjoyed chatting with John. It was just, I think you, you hear his warmth coming through in the conversation. Um, and though the two of you had known each other for quite a while, I uh, was sort of immediately welcomed into that, which was really wonderful. And a really insightful guy. Uh, he's obviously done a lot of thinking through his deconstruction and his process. And so great to hear of a story that in some ways survives and thrives post like institutional church space in where he finds himself now. That's, that's, that's really wonderful. I think it will give a lot of hope and courage to, to anyone listening who is in a employed ministry capacity. And if they're asking questions or considering issues, you know, in the way John was, I think it's a, it's a great sort of beacon of hope into the future to say deconstructing out of institution itself is hard, but is doable. Some hard times, definitely, I would say that again, but some real wonderful things on the horizon. And I really felt John sort of testified to that. I guess maybe just to jump straight in and ask you to tell us about your first experience of God and if and how that links into your experience of calling and your process into, into the ministry. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I grew up in a, a Christian home that would best be called fundamentalist, but, uh, you know, and certainly within all of that had, had some kind of experience of God, but I think the a defining um, experience of God came after I had quite intentionally rejected all of that and um, tried to move away from Christianity, I guess, as a, as a teenager and into my early 20s. And I've actually been running a nightclub in Cape Town, kind of you know, living a fairly wild life and far away from, I thought, God and the church and anything like that. And yeah, I had a, an interesting experience. I'll, I'll just give there's a short prelude to it that um, a friend and I had met someone at, at a bar in, on the Atlantic seaboard and got chatting to him. He seemed like a, a really cool guy, beautiful girlfriend that he was pursuing, a really nice Porsche. Um, we, we, you know, we, we were quite impressed with him and got chatting. And then we went to a club in town. It was a Thursday night. Had a few more drinks with him. And somewhere in the conversation, he said to us, you know, you guys might look at me and be impressed with what I own and how much money I make. But I need to tell you that the most important thing in my life is my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I kind of cringed at that. And I thought, ah, you know, I, I'm so over that. Um, don't come with that kind of stuff. It's kind of, it's, it's ruining the, the potential friendship. 
but somehow it it kind of it 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 impacted me that here was this guy who um, who who had a faith that was was really rich and meaningful, and uh, you know something else happened that night. Um, a, a close friend of mine who had worked with me in the nightclub, um, the kind of head bouncer, I suppose you could call him, and this was the days before the Russian mob um, ran security at clubs, um, got killed at about. 4.30 that morning in a, in a, in a really um, horrible accident uh, in Greenpoint. And I just remember seeing this guy, Chris, and um, his, his kind of body crushed in his car and the last bits of life leaking out of him, um, saying, look after my little girl, and then he died. And, yeah, I remember going home that night and um, the kind of juxtaposition of, of this guy um, his his um, Tony's talking about his relationship with Jesus and then being confronted with mortality in that way, uh, made me pray a prayer. And I, I said, God, I don't know if you're real or not. I actually don't know if I believe in you anymore. But if you are real, you're going to have to reach out and get me because I don't know how to do this. And uh, I was probably fairly drunk when I prayed it. Um, and I fell asleep and woke up in the morning and pretty much forgot about it. Exactly a week later, um, I was burgled and lost absolutely everything I owned, and it wasn't insured. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, it's not the end of the world. I've got a good job. Well, it's just stuff. And I, I went into work the next morning, and in a, a really weird set of circumstances, I was forced to resign um, or be fired with all sorts of false allegations being made against me. So by lunchtime, I didn't have possessions or a job. And I thought, well, I thought at least I've still got a gorgeous girlfriend. And um, <laughs> went that Friday night um, to, um, to meet her at a club in town. And I got kind of publicly dumped by her wearing a really expensive dress I'd bought her the week before. <laughs> and I thought, well, at least I've still got my buddies. You know, you've always got your friends and you can count on them. And my best friend looked at me and he was going out with her best friend. He said, John, I'm not getting involved. And I went outside and got into my car and started driving. And it was, um, weather a little bit like we're having in Cape Town at the moment, cold and cloudy and sort of a misty rain. It started raining. And I started crying and just thinking, well, you know, there goes my life. And it was in that moment of thinking, there goes my life, that I had a, an experience of God's power and God's love. Um, that was so powerful and um, so real that, um, yeah, I, I kind of, it, it, it felt like, I, it felt like electricity had gone through my body. It felt like um, I'd come alive in, in some way. And, and I just knew, 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 knew that um, God was real, that Jesus was real, and I knew God's love. And I actually drove around from about, 11, um, 11 that night until my petrol tank was almost empty at 4.30 the next morning, uh, worshipping. Of course, I didn't know any worship songs, so I probably composed the, the, the very worst <laughs> 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 attempt at worship music in the history of worship music. But for me, it was, you know, I, I think I was using tunes that came from, from secular music, but just putting my own lyrics to it. It was just the most incredible experience of God. And, and yeah, that that was a life changing thing for me in every way. As they say, still better than a Hillsong CD. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, at least the hill. So I, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. So <laughs> even though when I'm driving my car, I think I can. <laughs> I think part of the, that experience, though, and I think it comes to the second part of the question you asked me in relation to my calling, was I realized that the part of the world and the part of society and the part of, um, call it youth culture, whatever that I was in, was a, a, a part of the world that had zero point of contact with God or Jesus or the church. The Ingeerkerk had a, a group of people called the Stratwerkers who used to, um, they wore uniforms and they used to try and reach the lost clubbers. But, but not in a way that anyone was ever going to see God, I don't think, through what they were doing, because it, it was, it, yeah, it just lacked the, the, the sense of God's power. And so I think I came out of that with a, a kind of a, a question in my heart and a dream in my heart of, of doing church and doing mission in a particular way that would reach young people and that would reach the young people that the church was really missing and that... Um, um, kind of were outside of the scope of, of certainly what, what, what any church in, in Cape Town was doing at that time. Um, it was really difficult for me to go back to church, even though I'd grown up in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. It was one of those things like, Jesus, if, if these are your friends, um, I'll, I'll be nice to them, but, but this is difficult. <laughs> and I just thought, <laughs> wow, for, for, um, for the people I, I knew to actually go to um, to a church service would have just been a huge, huge stretch. It would have actually been quite an alienating experience. And, and that was going to a, a variety of, of churches and I suppose good, solid, well-meaning churches, but that just had become very, very subor- suburban and tame and, and kind of expressed a, the kind of, I suppose, the, the late 80s, early 90s evangelical subculture in South Africa. And the and the process from from there. I mean, it it sounds like uh, even though you'd grown up within a Christian household and then had this reconnection with God in in, in crisis, that it was still a stretch for you to go back to church. So, uh, how does how, how do the dots connect from there to you being a pastor in a church? Well, I I, um, I, I joined a small church um, in the southern suburbs and. Um, Leaders there started looking at me after a year or two and saying, you know, we think that there's some kind of a calling on your life and we see gifts. I'm not sure looking back if, if they saw spiritual gifts or if they saw a level of natural ability and, yeah, and even um, pathological ability to be charming <laughs> and manipulative <laughs> and call that leadership. Well, leadership, leadership can be thought of as good manipulation, right? <laughs> So, so you know, there were some probably some 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 good things they saw too. So they they encouraged me to to study theology, and I looked at a couple of places, and and ended up um, studying at a Baptist seminary in Cape Town. Yeah, a, a, a friend of mine, Paul, and I used to go during that time and go to a church which was then called the Vineyard, which later became Jubilee on Sunday nights, and just try and listen to good expository preaching, which was something they were well known for. A guy called Graham Ingram was the pastor there. And then came in contact with, with the vineyard, which in many ways at the time, kind of the, the values of the vineyard in terms of certainly how they described them, um, resonated with a kind of spirituality that certainly was more appealing to me than anything I'd experienced before. Uh, a very strong emphasis on grace, um, on being real and authentic, um, 
on adult to adult relationships between leaders and people rather than the kind of top-down parent-child relationships which I'd become so used to in the church there were just and the whole idea of healing and, and the idea that that God's power was real and that um, God could be experienced and um, God wasn't just something that we read about and talked about and tried to explain conceptually and yeah so that that, that kind of uh, you know I, I got involved in a vineyard church in the southern suburbs over time was was then brought onto staff there uh, as, as a kind of a I don't know what I was at the time um, assistant pastor or something like that in in the late 90s and, and all of that I suppose was me trying to find my way in what I understood to be some kind of a calling on my life mm. So, so in some ways, it was like, um, uh, I guess, something that you that you were led into, but it, it didn't depart from a um, almost a clear sense of of God calling you to to take on that as a professional career. There, there was, I suppose, you know, it was difficult to to figure out, um, you know, whether whether calling necessarily involved a professional career or not. I think it was, you know, if, if I look back now, um, about twenty seven years. Also, later on in my life, I, I think that if I had found ways of pursuing that sense of calling without it becoming a professional career, uh, my, my journey with the church might have been different in some ways, um, but probably not in all ways. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it, it was always a thought of, you know, if, if to be paid to do something that I would do for free always seemed like a good deal <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah and things moved quite quickly from there into um starting a congregation um that was called new song where um it really started with with me and a, a worship team who were far more musically talented than i was talented as a preacher or a leader and um and a commitment not to allow that congregation to grow with transfer growth um, from other churches. And unless people had been thrown out of the other churches and had nowhere else to go, we, we wanted to try and grow by reaching people outside of the church, which I think in the, in the very early years, we, we got right to a certain extent. But that then led to, yeah, it was, we started off at a pub in Rondebosch and then um, we're at the River Club for quite a few years. So, so that was that. That then, I, I suppose, was was I suppose my my most where, where I felt most authentically um, in a way that I, that I was living in a way that was reflecting or honouring the sense of call I had on my life. Yeah, I, I remember one of the ways you you described your song was was that you know being surrounded by by churches where people, they got older, youth was no longer relevant to them, and they would exercise a choice in their faith by leaving. And uh, and so there was, uh, you know, much of the church is described by that gap of, you know, people in their late teens and early 20s, they, they leave church, they don't go to church. And yet New Song really plugged that gap. You know, people found that that was a, that was a home for them. What, what, what was some of that process for you to to land there? Was it just a a, a direct transference from 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 the earlier club days and doing something at the river, at the river club and in a no? I think it was it was it was it was it, there was certainly a desire to reach those people, but I think it was it came you know the the, the way New Song took shape came from a conviction that um, Jesus was incredibly attractive. And that if we 
could remove as many of the obstacles that the church seemed to put between people and Jesus as possible, it would create a space in which people could encounter Jesus through the Holy Spirit and, and that that would be enough. You know, then as a community or whatever happened to get said or done would really help people make sense of, of their encounter with Jesus and that the Holy Spirit would change people's lives in whatever way the Holy Spirit wanted to change people's lives. So it was really a sense of actually wanting to strip away what I perceived as being obstacles and barriers that religion and the church had inadvertently created or in my perception had created. And yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, you know, w one of the kind of things which, which kind of, to me said we'd got that right was, was, you know, we had a, in the early days, um, one of our, our earlier members had was working with a whole bunch of guys who had been um, quite far gone into drug addiction and heroin addiction and on the street. And they'd, they'd all joined a 12 step group and been told, you know, they, they had to get a higher power as part of their process. And I still remember one of them coming to me and saying, look, we don't really like Christians and we don't like church, um, but we, we, we need a higher power. And someone told us that we could meet Jesus here. And I was just so excited about that. And, you know, I can look back on, on that particular person now, 18, 20 years later on, um, and, and just see the, the impact that had in, in his life and in his friends' lives um, and, and how um, they really did encounter Jesus in a way that was transforming. And, you know, I think that there were many, for me, there were many, many stories like that. And I, I know, Tim, you were, you were very involved in some of those. So some of them are your stories. <laughs> but it, yeah. it, it, did, it did seem to be a place where people were just encouraged to take risks, um, encouraged to be authentic. Um, you know, um, I, was, I was very comfortable because I didn't feel I had to um, fulfill any kind of a, a typical or stereotypical role as a pastor or a leader. Um, in fact, I, I, I got... I got so, so I got accused more than once of pretending to be a pastor by people who came <laughs> in and saw me and thought he can't be one. Um, um, and 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 yeah, I, I think that the whole thing of for me the 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 community, the um, the reality of what God was doing, and all of that was just was just incredibly good. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think back to the New Song days, and in many ways. Uh, when, when you think of the traditional church compared to the business churches, there, there was there was something there. There was there was that sense that that this is growing and this is a contribution. And then somewhere along the way, I guess things changed for you, and you 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 left ministry. And there's a bit of a bit of a deconstruction, a bit of a like church is not working. You know, so in, so in some ways, New Song was a bit of an alternative to that, and yet. Uh, and a very successful alternative to that. So what was that bit of the journey for you? When, what was the process or the event or the moment of realization for you that, that you needed to move away from, from, from the ministry like that? Well, you know, I think, I think the one thing that happened out of New Song was because it was working and because the festival was working, it created certain perceptions of me among senior leadership in the Vineyard Movement that, that I was kind of destined for bigger things um, and that I should play a, a kind of a, a more significant leadership role, I suppose. So um, what happened was that um, the congregation I had started New Song out of, um, the, the, the pastor there was going on to start a theological institution. 
and they wanted me to take over that congregation. And I think I believed then that that I could kind of um, move over to to the what was the Kenilworth Vineyard, which later became the Cape Town South Vineyard, and kind of instill the same ethos that New Song had there. And, and that new song could carry on with other leaders, giving it shape and, and taking it forward. And that I could really um, be part of developing a, a missional congregation that, that was able to reach people outside the church in, in a more kind of, I suppose, suburban context where maybe some of the, the um, focal points were around issues of social justice and um, reconciliation and and issues like that, more than just particularly reaching young people. Yeah, it it was a it was a it was a a mixture. Uh, I think on the on the one level, um, you know, I think when I took over the leadership at Kenilworth, um, it was there was one black family in a church of about two hundred and fifty people, and it was very staid and suburban and by the time I left I think we had 17 different cultures in the church and white English-speaking people were less than half of the church worship was happening in multiple languages um, you know um, I didn't have drug addicts coming to church but I had some people who were post-Christian and would have probably identified as Buddhists coming to the church and and they felt that it was a space where they could encounter encounter God and and we and and so there was there was some good stuff happening there, but there was also I think the 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 there was a, a core of people in the church who um, who had been there before I came in as a leader who had really bought into it as a as a kind of a, a space for religious consumerism that the, the previous pastor had been a very well known preacher and theologian, and they were going there for a particular kind of product. Um, and so the, the pressure for me then, you know, the, the, the church grew um, in all sorts of ways, but the pressure for me became more and more to kind of keep what I call the show going. It was all about people coming on a Sunday and, and being frustrated. For instance, if I wasn't preaching and if someone else was preaching, I would have 10 emails on Monday saying, please tell us when so-and-so is preaching because we don't want to come to church when he's preaching because we don't like his preaching. And the same would apply to the worship teams and things like that. Um, you know, the, I mean, this is a bit later on when it was all unraveling, but one woman who was, who was actually the wife of the, the treasurer in the church, and I'm, I'm tempted to name her, and, but don't edit it out, I won't. She actually said in a meeting that was unpacking why they were unhappy with me, she actually said, we pay good tithes and we expect good services for what we pay. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you and have I, it. And I thought, wow, there you have it. Um, and, and, and so all of this was happening. At the same time, I, I, I kind of made a, um, I think I made a mistake in terms of who I brought into New Song at, at in terms of leadership. And so I, I, watched new, I watched the kind of actual values and ethos of New Song kind of being eroded. And a new song started dwindling and and kind of losing its its impetus, and and becoming a bit more like a Baptist youth group. And at the same time, there was just this relentless show that had to happen. And I think one side, we went away in at the beginning at the when was it end of two thousand and eight or two thousand and seven for a, a leaders weekend, and um, had a, I had this whole thing planned that we were going to do with all of the leaders. 
But um, is this in the yeah, kennel with time, John? The, the kennel with time, yeah. But but it, it felt like like God had other plans. And and Tim, I can't remember. I think you, I have a feeling you might have been there. But um, yeah, we, we just the Holy Spirit came and just broke us with um, the shallowness of what we called community, and the, the um, superficiality of our relationships with God and with each other. And instead of all sorts of um, plans and goals and strategies for the year ahead, it, you know, it, it almost felt like we had to take 20 steps back from big plans and big ideas and growth and things like that and, and, and actually um, pull back into a, a much more and discover authentic faith community. And I think if I think about the five or 600 people that were on the, the membership list at Kenilworth at that time, there were probably 150 of us that would have really enjoyed that journey. And, 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 and I, I suppose they were, in inverted commas, my people, the people that I felt an affinity with. But the other 450 wanted the show to go on. <laughs> and so I started saying, guys, look, we're, we're actually going to dial back on, on a whole lot of that stuff and, and, and try and pursue some of the more authentic stuff. And I, I started getting um, phone calls from denominational leaders saying, you know, like, John, you know, like, what's happened to you? Um, the income is dropping and numbers are dropping. Because I said to people, look, I said, if you don't like the direction we're taking, there are at least 10 fantastic churches in the immediate vicinity. And I'm, I'm really happy to help you plug into one of them <laughs> if, if that's what you want. You know, if, if you're wanting something that's more like a, a slick hour and a half a week of, of spiritual, of, of kind of your, your spiritual dose for the week. Um, yeah, I, I got given tape series to listen to um, on, on how to come up with a compelling vision. And I, mean, <laughs> I, I know all of that stuff, you know, and, and, and I was beginning to get burnt out by and, and experience an incredible loss of meaning, um, a loss of meaning in, in, around the consumerism and the consumer culture that I felt was just so prevalent, especially in the southern suburbs in Cape Town. It was just, you know, um, rich white people didn't want poor people in the church because, um, you know, they, they um, the, you know, poor people wanted simpler sermons and simpler songs and poor people didn't always smell good in summer or winter. Um, poor people <laughs> ate all the muffins before church. Um, poor people's children were disruptive in the children's church and all of this was interfering with, with uh, the show that people had bought into. And, and yeah, I say the space of being incredibly split between what my heart wanted and um, the reality of what was what was happening, I started getting experiencing a huge loss of meaning and getting increasingly burnt out. And and at that point, I think church politics came in in ways that uh, I, I should probably not um, go into detail on, on a podcast like this. But so, so, suffice to say that that there was um, from other leaders in the church, there was outright dishonesty, there was manipulation, there was. Uh, Stuff happening that that um, I can I can call it that because I've I've had conversations with everyone who was involved and and called it that with them and 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 they've acknowledged it years later and said we're so sorry, but there was some really ugly stuff that happened, um, really 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 ugly stuff that happened. I'm involving some senior Christian leaders, which which kind of left me feeling. Um, you know, I, to put it very graphically, um, I mean, it, it led to my resignation and then and then um, leaving the church, and our farewell service on 
in April 2010 was actually, apart from one visit, the last time I've actually been to a church service in the, uh, uh, you know, since, to, since then. But it, it left my wife and I feeling, and, and our, our words were as though we'd actually been spiritually gang raped and left next to the road. Um, so it, it wasn't a good experience. Um, and if I look back on it now, yes, people did some terrible things. There was manipulation. There was there were agendas. I was also an incredibly immature leader. Um, I, I, I look at um, I look at who I am now, and I think, wow, I would have handled so many things so differently, and worked with people so differently. And uh, so, so I have to take responsibility as well um, for my shortcomings as a leader. Um, terrible judgments I made about about leaders that I brought in, and you know, just all the areas where I got it wrong. Uh, you know, I, I, I think first and foremost was was even going over to Kenilworth um, from New Song. Um, you know, it, it, it was it was a kind of an attempt to, to, to as a shortcut <laughs> to get somewhere where I could maybe bring on some of the other leaders onto staff. Um, but but it was a it was a mistake. You know, John, when, when I listen to you describe that, I, I just want to see if I'm uh, following your story well enough as a complete outsider hearing you for the first time. Um, it sounds almost as though you're describing coming into a movement and then moving from the movement into the more entrenched institution. And you're not using that language, and I'm just wondering if that's kind of is that your trajectory that you feel, the new song in Kenilworth sort of sense of almost going further into the belly of the beast and starting to experience some of that, what is almost addict behavior, isn't it? You know, the, the show must go on, and so we'll, we'll actually do whatever we need to for the show to go on. Is, is that a sense of, of, of how you, you view that time period? I think, you know, I might answer your question in a slightly roundabout way in terms of the, the movement versus um, the, the more kind of um, established thing. I think any re any renewal movement begins um, with a, a kind of a defining experience and and um, which creates deeply held values. But as that renewal movement starts succeeding, um, it needs structures to make sure that those values can be translated consistently into into something, <laughs> you know, whatever they they're building. So the structures get added to the to the values, and then there's a level of success. But what what eventually happens is that I suppose the values become institutionalized, and they become mm. you know a bit like um, the signs on the wall at home affairs that say you know one of our values <laughs> is service. Yes. But anyone who goes to home affairs knows that that's not what you're going to experience there. But every, you know, the, the managers will tell the staff that's what they believe in. And, and I think um, one, of, one of my um, observations about the vineyard movement is that they've done what all um, renewal movements did is that it's a bit like the Mount of Transfiguration. They have such a defining experience of God that they want to turn it into an institution. I mean, the Baptists did it mm. with the Baptist principles and sort of 400 years later, or almost 400 years later, when the Pope isn't the biggest threat to the Baptist, they're still living by those same principles. And I think the vineyard started off with some great values, which were a contextual response to what God was doing in a particular context. But those values increasingly became institutionalized. And to the extent that they did, um, um, that they lost life. 
And I, I think, and this didn't come from me, it came from one of the original vineyard leaders, a guy called Gary Best, who had been part of the original kind of core team with John Wimber. He felt that what was happening at New Song and what we were doing was the closest he had seen to what he had experienced in the early days with John Wimber. And we got to spend quite a bit of time with him um, doing ministry in different parts of Europe and, and just kind of hanging out with him and learning from him. Um, so it felt like part of what we were doing at New Song was had had maybe in some way connected with the values in a way that was a bit more authentic. And the more institutionalized things became, as you say, in the belly of the beast, um, the expression of those values became less and less authentic. And um, maybe the, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Gary always used to say to me, John, just make sure you're measuring the right things. And if I look at what the more institutional churches measure or, or what Kenilworth measured in terms of the, the broader leadership, they were measuring money and they were measuring the number of people who came on a Sunday, which would have been the last things I would have measured. For me, those aren't the things to measure at all. So, so the more institutional things become, the more it becomes about um, keeping the institution going. And, um, you know, um, my observation of, of, of any leadership group, whether it's the ANC or a church group, is that when leaders have spent a lot of time together in a kind of a struggle in a renewal movement, they tend to be developed blind spots to each other's weaknesses or foibles, or perhaps excuse them in ways that ultimately lead to the erosion of the renewal movement. You can see it clearly happening in the ANC. But I've seen a similar thing happen in different church groups. And, and and studied it a bit and been fascinated about it. So so I just think there was a bit of a mess going on. Sorry, that's a very rambling answer to your question, Steve. No, that's good. I, it, I look at the, the situation that you paint almost, and I'm asking myself around the question, the question of a freedom and thinking, you know, new song, the way in which you describe it, sounds almost as though it operated to some extent on the periphery. Um, as a movement rather than sort of deeper entrenched and then you talk about your movement into Kenilworth and that's what I was I was looking at that kind of development from that sort of freedom and the, and the differences between the two. There was freedom at New Song um, and, and, and um, I think freedom not just for New Song but for people at New Song to take risks to do what they felt God was leading them to do in different contexts there, you know there was there was there was very little kind of control, I suppose, in, in the sense that there, there is when, when you have to do with a more organized institutional kind of church. Yeah, I think, I, th I think in many ways, it's, it's the classic thing where, where you've got a, a movement that wants to be established and stable and have succeeded and, you know, built something. And it's, it's still got these, these missional poles or missional outlets. And and in many ways, New Song served as that for the vineyard, which was moving towards a, a much more conservative, traditional kind of structure. Instead of in some ways doing something like New Song and then building structures that would be needed out of that, it, it's almost like they basically said, we've got these these old structures, let's just dust them off and bring them in in some ways. You know, I, I, I kind of read it a little bit that way. Yeah. I think you put that well, Tom. Yeah, I think you put that well. And I, I, I mean, I, I must say, like, I, I mean, I, I did leave before you left, and I, I, I still remember I, I had different groups of people trying to get me to come back. And yeah, you know, it was a, it was a difficult period. I, I, I do admit to nursing some 
uh, some, well, I, I do admit to missing no, no small measure of guilt <laughs> around whether I just abandoned you at a time that you actually needed some support as opposed to, you know, just recognizing that, 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 that I needed to process some stuff and journey some stuff as well. So, you know, you know, and, and we haven't spoken too much around that, but over the years, I've, 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 I've often wondered if I, if there would have been a difference had I come back or had I not left. Yeah, Tim, I think it actually preceded it. I, I think, you know, the, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, I'll own it. Um, I, you know, I, I actually think that um, uh, you are the person I should have handed over the leadership of New Song to, and and that New Song certainly might have survived and had a completely different different destination um, if that had been the case, and and it might have also managed to um, diminish some of the. Um, the pain in your journey around things like that. So, you know, it's something that I look back on and, and you know, um, I suppose two missteps I see. The, the one was my step into Kenilworth and the, and the other one was, was over who I, who I invited to, um, to lead at New Song. Um, <laughs> Admittedly, I would have been the very risky choice. Yeah, so. yeah, but that was, that's fine as well. I mean, wasn't, that actually, wasn't that actually what Newsong was all about? Was was those kinds of risky choices, and and you know, and and um, you know, for me, it's it's all about the the risky pursuit of God in a real way and in an authentic way, and in a way that um, doesn't artificially. Um, draw lines and barriers that keep certain people out or that um, exclude. You know, you know, for me, it, uh, you know, I'd, I'd be all for, um, for risky. And, and I suppose I, I wish I'd also um, made the decision to do what I do now, which is to make my living um, outside of the church um, back then, because um, it, it wouldn't have given certain leaders so much power and so much say in the situation. You know, when, when someone controls your salary and basically your family's life or life, their survival, it gives them a disproportionate amount of power in the decision-making process. Where, where, where if, I, if I was in the situation I'm in now, I, I would have used language with them that I'm not going to use with, with Steve <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> John, I wanted to ask you, if, if I may, I'm aware that these are potentially sensitive and, um, you know, they're moments full of emotion and they're loaded um, that, we, that we sometimes describe very briefly. And so if I may ask you some questions there, you talked about this exit point and you used a phenomenal descriptor. I don't think I've ever heard that language before and I think it is fantastic. I'm going to actually borrow it, if I may, to, to suggest to people who've had somewhat similar experiences or just needing something to be able to, to name what they've been through. But that idea of being spiritually gang-raped, and, and I don't think you use it ill-advisedly or, or, or flippantly. And, and I wondered whether you might be willing to just tease some of that out for us. And I'll give you the context of the question because it's kind of multi-layered. You know, we, we see that part of the, the accusation thrown at church leaders and church leavers specifically, and I would think very much from leaders to leavers in that, is, is you leave God and the church and your faith and everything behind, right? And it's just a complete 
falling down and everything gets gets left behind because you know there's all sorts of things we can say there about the church owning god etc etc but i wondered how much you can share there in terms of that moving away from from the ecclesia that church and and what that meant in terms of your actual belief space there whether for you it was a leaving behind of god or just the church the institution etc and what that what that was like in terms of that experience what was the next day the next weeks the next months and and perhaps even you know the 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 depth of emotion that drives you to that final point of going this is it if that's clear enough a question <laughs> there, there, there were so many layers to it that that um, you know, you know I, I suppose I'll, I'll start with the, perhaps the deeper layers and then move to to the sense making part of it. That's a kind of almost retrospective looking at it, but but it was devastating. Um, we we lost our, our our lives. We lost our community. We, we uh, I was uh, an unemployed pastor in 2010. Uh, I'm not qualified to do anything else. Uh, we financially we we, we Got into a place of, of of almost complete financial ruin. It it had an incredibly um, negative impact um, on both of my sons and their spirituality and spiritual formation. It did significant damage to my marriage because a lot of the conflict was around expectations that uh, my wife would have been played a certain role next to me in the church, but without um, any kind of recognition or without being paid for it, that she kind of came with me as a kind of a, a free accessory. And, 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 and things that were said to her, and there, there, was, there was incredible cruelty. Um, and uh, and it, it precipitated, I think, a kind of a midlife crisis for me as well, because I was... 42, 43, and um, everything I what I'd given my life to for 17 years had just crumbled. And I was um, a chili sauce salesman in the Eastern Cape all of a sudden, <laughs> smos, <laughs> um, trying trying literally to sometimes make enough money in a day just so my family would eat something at night and things like that, you know, before I started eventually moving into a healthier space that way. So it was, it was a time of of just incredible personal devastation and pain and um, and a kind of a dark night of the soul that that you know lasted for at least two years um, before starting to come out of it and you know it, it it was processed I think and and helpfully by by talking to some of the leaders who had been involved and by having being able to have some very honest conversations with them and and honest tears with them and kind of um, reconciliation. Um, with others, the, the conversations were honest, but didn't lead to any kind of, um, I felt authentic reconciliation, but I felt I'd, we'd said whatever we needed to say. So it was a, it was just, it was a horrible experience. Um, but for me, it didn't necessarily, I, I, I think in some ways I felt closer to God um, and felt that what, where we were at and where we had gone and what we were doing was still very much part of, of what God wanted for us. Even the move up to the Eastern Cape, um, had, 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 there were a whole lot of reasons. You know, some of it had come through prophetic stuff um, years before, and some of it just came through other ways that we felt that God was taking us aside to kind of recalibrate us and, um, and, and, and heal us in a way. And, 
in, in many respects, that was true. It was a, going up to a place where no one knows you and you can be completely anonymous. It was all good. And I kind of look at it now and make sense of it. It's, it, it's really a bit like um, Israel's experience of the exile, of being taken away from the familiar, taken away from the temple and having all of that destroyed and being dumped in a strange land. Um, <laughs> And, 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 and discovering that God's there with you in the strange land and that actually God's presence can be more alive and more real. So I find that there's a, there's a theologian called Walter Brueggemann who's, who's written some amazing reflections on, um, on spirituality for that kind of space of, of exile. And, and he's related it to Christianity's exile from the mainstream of, you know, in a, a kind of a, a, a was a post-secular society where, where Christianity has been pushed to the margins and then to the margins again and lost its place of privilege in society. His book is addressing that sense of dislocation from, um, from being at the center. But I, I found it was very useful for me just in terms of thinking about about my own experience of dislocation and my own experience of exile. And, and the question for me then was, what does spirituality, what does faith, what does worship look like in this place of exile? And for me, I suppose the, the dominant theme that I, I regained was that of freedom and freedom to pursue what was authentic and what was real, even if what was authentic and what was real fell outside of the boundaries of what might be considered evangelical orthodoxy, that I'm, I'm quite happy and was and am quite happy to be a heretic, <laughs> to discover the reality of God in, in other practices, other traditions that, that don't in any way contradict my understanding of who God is and particularly who God is in Jesus, but that um, would certainly terrify the, your more traditional church groups and things like that. But the interesting thing is, is that I've also, I've also experienced more personal growth and transformation through those practices than I did in 20 years of being a Christian leader. And, and it's, it, it's made me wonder about, about what we do with people when they come into the church and what, why churches experience so much of what they experience that, um, you know, I think there are other traditions that have, maybe appropriated and understood some of the tools that Jesus and God gave us for spiritual transformation better than, um, than the church does. So yeah, so I've, 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 I've been influenced quite a lot by mindfulness practice and through mindfulness um, by um, not so much the, the, the whole thinking system behind it, but some of the practices that, that are part of Tibetan Buddhism and, and, and their idea of authentic humanity and and just what it means, you know, um, to live as a human being in this world in a way that faithfully seeks to follow the example of Jesus, of this Galilean revolutionary <laughs> um, who has been, I think, um, so misappropriated by, by Christendom and empire and turned into something which he wasn't. So, yeah, so it's been a journey of, of growth and exploration and discovery and, and, and I suppose increasing freedom for me being in that space of exile. <laughs>